Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are continuing our journey through the seven deadly sins, through the uh, sort of the psychology of each sin, the science mm-hmm. of each sin. And uh, we find ourselves, uh, interestingly enough, only standing in the second circle of hell if we're using Dante's Inferno as the map of human inequity. That's right. Today's subject, what you've all been waiting for, lust. (laughs) Which is, I guess, why we ended up situating it a little farther along in the roll call of sins, because... Because, like I say, Dante lists it rather early. You're walking into into hell, the, the realm of eternal punishment in Dante's epic work, The Divine Comedy. And uh, the first circle you encounter are, are basically the noble individuals who just happen to live before the age of redemption. So you have all these philosophers that are richly adored, not only by Dante, but by Western culture of, of the time in the mm-hmm. Middle Ages. Due to technicality, they're not permitted to rise above hell, so they just kind of live on the outskirts of hell. But they have their nice little circle. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a nice area. Like, if you had to live in hell, like this is the place to be. Even better than working there, because some of the guys that work there are pretty bad off. But um, this is like the white collar circle, right? White coll- collar crime circle. Well, yes, or the academia section of hell. Really. Okay, yeah. all right. It's a reasonably pleasant place, even though they too are removed from God, so they're you know kind of sad. But uh, the second circle is where it, we actually start getting a little hellish, and, and just a little, because Dante seems to discount, not discount lust, but, but lust is very much seen as a more of a minor and relatable infraction. Mm-hmm. It's one that, that Dante has a lot of sympathy for. So uh, first you have to stroll past this monster that goes by the name of Minos that has this long tail, and uh, he'll uh, wrap this tail around you. And the number of times this tail can loop around your body, that informs which circle of hell you're bound for. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly how the science of that works, but... That's very dramatic. Yeah. You know, it's not just like Hago over there. Yeah. It's you like you, you meet all these sort of sad but otherwise noble intellectuals, and then the next thing you know, there's a monster wrapping you up in its tail and then flinging you off to some circle of torment. Well, the second circle of hell is all about the lust. You see all these individuals caught in this maelstrom. It's just wind... Uh, everywhere, blowing them around. The translation that I'm reading here, this is from Robert M. Durling's translation of the Divine Comedy, which I highly recommend if you end up wanting to dive into the Divine Comedy. The description goes, The infernal whirlwind which never rests drives the spirits before its violence, turning and striking. It tortures them. When they come before the landslide, there the shrieks, the wailing, the lamenting, uh, there they curse God's power. I understand that to this torment were damned the carnal sinners who subject their reason to their lust. Ah. And that's kind of um, that's kind of Dante's whole take on it is that it's about reason becoming usurped by desire. Mm-hmm. De- desire is uh, expressed as as one's weight or dominant inclination. So this is so we see the wind in this circle. It's the wind yeah. that drives the soul. It's the force of the, of the desire. You see such uh, famous lusty individuals in this circle as Cleopatra, Helen of Troy, Dido, Paris, Tristan, Achilles. And he's, by and large, pretty sympathetic towards these people. And then if you uh, if you end up going on up to Purgatory, which, again, is the mountain in the Divine Comedy that connects the earth to the earthly paradise and then on to heaven, the middle ground between hell and heaven. You see all these terraces that one has to climb this mountain and purge themselves of a sin for each level. Well, you have to travel all the way up to uh, Terrace 7 in Purgatory, which makes sense because this is the terrace closest 
to the terrestrial heaven. So mm-hmm. you, this is the last sin you have to get knocked off. They get some of the big ones first. So on this terrace, the individuals who are purging themselves of lust are walking around just immersed in like a, a whirlwind of fire. And it's sort of burning the lust off of them. And you find various Burning the of lust, lust off. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Burning themselves clean of it. We've all done that at some point. I like this idea of the maelstrom and the winds because I do think of lust like this. It's like the ultimate diversion. It's this thing that sort of takes over your mind and completely scrambles uh, your your cognitive abilities to some degree. And you can really go wild with, I mean, it's easy to look at lust and think of it purely in terms of one's desire for the flesh, one's sexual desires becoming the dominant force. You see lust ascribed to any number of things. So, for instance, one of my favorite books, The Name of the Rose, is very much a book about all the different types of lust mm-hmm. that can afflict a person. There's the lust for forbidden loves, the lust for flesh, the lust for knowledge, the lust for new things, uh, Neophilia, Neophilia. the lust for truth, the lust for adoration, the lust for humility, the lust for pain, which ties in with our podcast about martyrs and Mm -hmm. and torture. And then in Buddhism, we mentioned the Wheel of Samsara in our uh, in one of our uh, our previous episodes about sin, about how uh, there are these three forces at the center of this wheel of suffering. They're summarized by these three animals, and one of them is the cock, which represents greed. But also tied up in this animal are the forces of lust. So if lust is a force of desire, clearly that's the way Dante sees it, that's the way any number of commentators see it, then it obviously serves as a hindrance to the Buddhist soul. So it's also tied in with some of the higher realms of reincarnation, such as the Asherah, the Deva, and of course the human realms, mm-hmm. where people become wrapped up in these emotions that are becoming the dominant force in their lives and end up delivering them again into uh, suffering and disappointment. Well, and speaking of the cock animals, right? The satyr, which oh, is yes, uh, yes. you know something that's a half human, half goat. Like you think of Pan, right? Right. This is another really good symbol of lust. Yes. And, uh, the ancient Greeks. Ancient Greeks. In fact, there's a... I don't know if I should actually describe this, but I, I, I'm sure everybody is familiar with Just the, use a really juvenile term. Like, th- think... Um, how would a kindergartner describe it? Okay, so... Not that one should. All right, so you've seen the Greek pots, right, that mm-hmm. usually have depict certain scenes. And yeah, we all know the that they're kind of racy. Okay, yeah. using a juvenile term, there is a picture of a satyr who has his frank and beans exposed. Okay. And his frank is, uh, is actually balancing a wine cup. Which I think is kind of like the ultimate expression of not just animal sexuality, but lust and desire because, I mean, you know, throw a little wine in there. Yeah, just total bacchanalian nuttery. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Because what fuels lust more than, than uh, the wine of the gods, right? The symbol search to make you think about, like, what exactly is lust? Um, you know, it is a state of nature. It's a state of mind. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's why it doesn't get too bad uh, a rap in terms of... Uh, the circle of hell it's placed in. Right. Right. The, the satyr is interesting because on one hand, like clearly the Greeks loved the satyr. Like the satyr is this almost kind of a mascot at times, you know, and the the way uh, he's depicted and even looking at it now, you're like, you kind of want to be the satyr. Like the satyr's having the time of he got the his life. You know? He got the wine. Yeah, music, wine, good food, lovemaking, um, just totally living in the moment. And it's just, you know, it's, it's the hedonism bot of... Of, of, of ancient Greece. Uh, but then on the, at the same time, he's monstrous. He has bestial aspects to his body. And, and again, it's worth noting that the monster comes from uh, etymology of the word, dates back to the idea that it's demonstrating something to illustrate a point. Right. In every monster, there is something telling about the society that creates it. 
which is why we spend a lot of time in each of these sin podcasts talking about the imagined monsters of hell, because they inevitably illustrate how we view a particular sin. And the, the, the Seder is a great example of this. Uh, yeah, it is the grotesquery of human nature. And we talked about this a bit in the Discuss podcast, and we were talking about how part of what fuels our sense of disgust can sometimes relate back to the fact that we don't necessarily want to embrace our animal selves. We try to divorce ourselves from that. Right. Uh, at least most of us do most of the time. And so when you think about the Seder, yeah, fun time, but also, ah, uh, you know, so, so animalistic. Couldn't mm-hmm. be me, right? But, you know, when you talk about lust, you talk about the Seder, you wonder if it's really a sin, if it's essential to our nature, because it is part of the evolutionary machinery uh, in terms of coupling, right? right? I mean, most of the time, or the way it works, right, is that you have to have something fueling you to decide to couple with someone to perhaps mate with them mm-hmm. for life and lust is sort of the glue of that arrangement yeah i mean it's very much a part of the genetic mission and that's one of the things that makes lust so resting because it's very difficult to combat like lust is this thing that makes perfect sense from an evolutionary standpoint and from an animalistic standpoint but then as animals we end up reaching this point where we create this culture around ourselves that lust doesn't necessarily jive with we cannot be the satyr in no. everyday life right. because we would, we would. I mean, there are people who try. God bless them. I guess Bacchus maybe bless them. But it tends to be kind of destructive if you just let lust totally dictate every choice in your life. And do you know why? Because it's not necessarily wine that is being balanced by those, by the frankenbeans <laughs> okay. that's in that cup. It's really a cup of dopamine. Our friend dopamine uh, of course, dopamine. showed up on the scene in every single one of these sins. Uh, but, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but dopamine here is seriously, uh, I guess you could say, manipulating our thought processes mm-hmm. when it comes to lust. And I kind of call this the yowza effect. Yowza effect, okay. The yowza. Because it's not just dopamine, but you also ha- have norepinephrine released. And what happens is, is when you begin to lust, you see something that excites you, is you have all sorts of craziness going on with your vital signs, your heart rate increases, uh, your reward system is going ding ding in your mm-hmm. brain, you're sweating a little, your limbic system is going, yeah, give me more of that. And in fact, it's, it's pretty much a, a full brain event, lust. Um, yeah. no, they didn't some experiments where, of course, they hooked people's brains up to monitoring imaging equipment, and then they displayed some, uh, shall we say, erotic material for mm. the uh, individuals mm-hmm. uh, whose brains were being scanned, and they sat back and watched what lit up. And they saw regions uh, light up that were associated with reward, sensory and interpretation, visual processing. So it's lighting up the amygdala, the hypothalamus, which deals with emotional information. It's stimulating reward processing uh, a ventral stratum, probably due to the satisfying nature of mm-hmm. uh, the stimuli. It's just really setting everything ablaze. Particularly with a, with a male, you can look at their brain scan and tell, uh, at an MRI brain scan, and tell if they are aroused or it not. It is a much stronger response in men than, than women. Yeah. Uh, lust and this reaction to images. Yes, indeed. And what I thought was really interesting about that is that the dopamine is being released. You can see this happening in the brain when someone sees an image that excites them. Not only that, you can, you see what's happening in the brain, like you say, it's an all-event thing going on, but you know, you've got parts of your brain that's saying, let's act on this, let's go. And then milliseconds later, your frontal cortex, which has to mediate all mm-hmm. of this and bring reason into it, 
has just a very small window to actually say, you know what, maybe this isn't the best idea. Last time we did this, we got into a lot of trouble and we Uh acted on this lust or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think is fascinating about the fMRI images that you see with men considering just these really split-second photos, which, by the way, are interspersed with, with control photos. Like, here's a picture of a woman's breast in a black lace bra, right? right. It's not and too then, crazy. And then here's one of like a dog eating a birthday cake or something, right? Yes. Okay. And hopefully that's not something that is exciting <laughs> to them, but uh, snow-covered trees or something along oh, okay. those lines. There's the control there so you can really see the brain in action. But again, it comes down to these split-second decisions that we make. Um, and of course, this isn't necessarily indicative of a real-world scenario because we're not stuck in an fMRI usually right. when we see images or think thoughts that really excite us. But still, it gives us a clue. Another thing that's fascinating about this is that, uh, again, we, we build this culture up around ourselves and these uh, these various social systems, uh, and our lust doesn't really jive with it. So we have to find ways to defeat lust. Because otherwise we would be like tongue hanging out, not yeah, getting yeah. any work done, right? We look right? like the cartoon coyote, or wolf rather, with the eyes and the tongue, which is kind of a cartoon version of the satyr to a certain extent. Yeah. So we have to find ways to shut it down, right? You could think of it as thinking about baseball, just saying, oh, we're not going to think about this, we're going to think about, about this. And they've actually uh, studied this as well to see what's happening in the brain when uh, someone is shutting down lust, yeah. when they're shutting it out. As with a, a number of other powerful impulses in the brain, we attempt to shut it down by calling upon the right superior frontal gyrus and right anterior cigulate gyrus. And this is according to research by uh, Mario Beauregard at the University of Montreal. Uh, he and others propose that these brain areas form a conscious self-regulatory system. It's a network that provides us with the evolutionary the unprecedented ability to control our own neural processing, which uh, is pretty impressive. That's like yeah, something that's you don't saying. see in other species. Right. You don't necessarily see this in, in other animals. Mm-hmm. This is very particular to humans. And again, this ability to, to take that split second and weigh whether or not you should act on it mm-hmm. and what the implications are. And we've talked about this before, like our brain is really constructed to try to see into the future and see ourselves into the future. So that's not aha moment, but still, it's pretty impressive that right. we can do this. And I think it's interesting to, to sort of take that out outside of the, the context of lust too. Um, like we've talked before about just sort of the quagmire of of thinking about your thinking, you know, or, yeah. or just letting your thoughts run wild. Taking it outside of, of lust, because you can get into some sort of weird puritanical territory if you're thinking about like, oh, I'm going to shut down dirty thoughts in my brain. But I think it is a useful exercise to be able to shut down thinking in your brain, especially when it's sort of harmful, let me drag out the sad toys of my past kind of thinking. Yeah, I think it was Eckhart Tolle who pointed out that if you think to yourself, I wonder what my next thought will be, you concentrate on that thought. Like that that has a, an easy and, and significant ability to sort of clear out all the, the processing that's going on. Whether you're thinking about something depressing that happened in your past or something intimidating in the future or something lustful breezing through your brain. Well, I mean, this is particularly important if you're a sex addict, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be able to shut down that thought process because that, to me, seems to be like a heightened state of desire, right? which is you know, no longer productive, right, for right. just seeking out but the satyr is, is always seeking to come out in one. And, <laughs> and right. where conceivably, like, the picture of the trees could excite you because you're, you're reading something sexual into everything. Exactly. Uh, like, yeah, I, I, yeah. I've seen that tendency in some people. Well, um, what I do want to mention, too, and this is from Discovery Channel's The Science of Lust, okay. um, apparently women are much better at dialing down the lust factor. 
Really? Yeah. Because Dante had several of them showing up in his Well, uh, you know, I circle. mean, women women just, they're as lusty as men, but this is interesting. But differently. Okay, they, okay. they control the process in a different way, according to this, right? Okay. There was this really interesting study in which a, uh, women were asked to wear sensors to monitor their heart rates, uh, their blood pressure, and I'm not going to go into to how this happened, but their blood flow to their genitalia. Okay. Uh-huh. In addition, the subject has a lever that she controls with her hand to indicate when she's aroused by what she sees on a screen. Okay. Okay. So she's got this little device that she just kind of pushes up or down when she is feeling aroused. So she's shown a 90s era promotional video for Russia. And <laughs> apparently this is like the most like uh, neutral, non-sexual footage that they could get. Okay. You know, no, no offense, Russia, but apparently like your landscapes aren't all that sexually exciting. <laughs> and then they show porn. Okay. Okay. So while watching the porn, the woman's vital signs are clearly like going nuts. She, her body is actually responding to this. But what is really interesting is that she is pulling the lever down to indicate that she is not at all aroused. In fact, she's like the negative of aroused. So meanwhile, they also do this with men. Okay. And they see the male subject also watching the same videos and then they also have the same response to the videos in terms of their vital signs mm. and the flow of blood to their genitalia. The difference is that men report that they are mentally aroused, okay? So they take that lever and they push it up like full speed. Huh. And so the idea is that, again, women can control this, that perhaps the disconnect, and some of this could be cultural too, right? Because that really does have a bearing on how you perceive things. So. You know, there's that aspect to it. But the idea is that from an evolutionary point of view, women had have to be much more selective because mm-hmm. they, if they were to get into a situation where they become pregnant, then they are, you know, of course, bound to raise that child. And that's a lot of resources. So right. this idea is that women are much more selective and able to take that part of their brain, the, the reasoning the frontal cortex and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not really invested in what I'm seeing. I might be aroused, but I'm not going to act on it. And again, this is pretty much pointing back to what you were talking about with Mario Beauregard of the University of Montreal, who was saying that we have this self-regulatory system. Right. The idea, again, is that women have it more so. Um, it would be really interesting to see more studies on this and also to take in the cultural context of it before saying, oh, women, they're just they're awesome at this, you know. Because uh, I think there's a little bit more to that than just this black and white situation in this one experiment in a room. All right. Well, uh, we should probably take a break at this point. Yeah, yeah, because when we get back, we are going to talk about whether some people are just born lusty. All right, we're back. And before we jump right back into the science, I thought I'd point out an interesting point that I ran across from a, a few different critics who pointed out that, that since lust is so ingrained in human nature, mm-hmm. when organized religion condemns it, it's kind of like a spiritual speed trap. You know, like a small town, generally in the United States, you only think of it like a small southern town, where the speed limit ends up suddenly dropping to such a low level that a large number of people are going to legally be speeding, and therefore they get caught, and then uh, they're you know brought into the system to to pay into the system for their uh, for their traffic mm-hmm. ticket. So that if you if you have a, r- a religious system that calls you out on something that you basically cannot help, it's guaranteed to bring you in. Oh, okay, so you're saying that you begin to to think more about it to actually 
subscribe to it a little bit more on, on, on a psychological level? Well, it's kind of like, um, hey, do you have a problem with lust? Well, we've got the religion for you. Well, everybody has a problem with lust if you define it in, in these terms, you mm-hmm. know? It's just an interesting uh, interesting way to, interesting to me anyway, a uh, way to look at it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Like I'm thinking of it very much in terms of a speed trap. Huh, okay. Whereas like murder isn't as much of a speed trap. Now I'm seeing signs like lust ahead. Yeah, next 30 miles. <laughs> lust uh, monitored by uh, lust detecting devices. I uh, some micro drones... Lust, yeah. lust planes ahead. So, okay, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, we, we always like to think about the opposite of, of what we're talking about, right? In terms of these seven deadly sins. So, um, what would be the opposite of lustiness? Unlustiness? Yes. Ding, ding. <laughs> Specifically, uh, in humans, asexuality. Okay. Okay. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because, uh, and again, this was from Discovery Channel's Science of Lust. Um, they were saying that 1% of the population will report a lifelong lack of sexual attraction for either sex. Again, known as asexuality. And that this uh, seems to be something that is hardwired in individuals. So I bet they get so much done in a day, you know? It's possible. I mean, the people that they interviewed, they seem to say, you know what, I don't have a problem with this one way or the other. It's just not something that is present in me. And uh, the researchers were saying there's nothing wrong. I think they actually even used the term plumbing. There's nothing wrong with their plumbing. In mm-hmm. other words, they are completely healthy individuals that just have a, a lack of lust in yeah. their life. It's like John McHale on Community talking about Paul Rudd as a comedian. He said, I see the appeal. It's just not for me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. For them, it's all Paul Rudd all the time. Yeah. No offense, Paul Rudd, because, you know, he's, he's a cute guy. Um, God, this is going somewhere else. Um, <laughs> anyway, so the point of this, the reason why the, we're, we're talking about asexuality is because if it is hardwired in individuals, you then take the opposite tack to say, could others be born overly lusty? Could they be hardwired for lust? Super lusters. Super lusters, like super tasters, I don't know. Uh, Dean Hamer, a geneticist, discovered that there are certain genes involved in the libido. And when he was trying to find correlations to DNA and personality, he uh, gave people all sorts of personality tests. And what he found is that people who reported a higher interest in, in engaging in risky sexual behavior have a mutation on a gene related to dopamine. Oh, okay. oh, dopamine again. If you have this mutation, you're more likely to respond to the dopamine released by new and different sexual experiences. And this leads to sexual thrill seeking. Okay. So I was actually thinking about that in terms of neophilia. Too. Exactly. Yeah. Again, neophilia, the people that have these actual genes that in which they are hardwired to seek out new experiences. Also, uh, there's a mutation connected to the brain chemical serotonin. And that's sometimes known uh, to cause high anxiety. Mm-hmm. At different levels, and is also known to be strongly correlated to a high sex drive. So there are different factors going on, biological factors, clearly, that could dictate some someone's uh, response to sexually charged images. Right. Which isn't to say that you're not responsible for your own behavior, mm-hmm. but if your tongue is always hanging out on the floor, maybe <laughs> you should look into this. I don't know. Well, you can you can easily imagine then where you uh, you have these biological causes, and then if you uh, depending on what specific culture one is born into or finds themselves living in, I mean mm-hmm. that that has a a drastic effect on human happiness, your ability to to have any kind of like satisfying sexual and or emotional life. And speaking of cultural too, that reminds me to to mention that we should probably take a look at the 
environment that we're living in today, right? Right. And that reminds me of the uh, the article, The Internet is for Porn. Let's start talking about it. It's a great article that talks about the fact that we live in Oh, a, is this like The Economist or something? Uh, I think, believe it was Forbes. Forbes, yeah. I knew yeah. it was somewhere for, where you didn't quite expect the uh, that title. Yeah, yeah. The, it's another Julie, but I can't remember her last name, but not mine. But uh, she says, and this is a quote from it, in the largest case of TMI in recent history, computational neuroscientists Oji Ojas and Sai Gautam looked at a billion web searches, a million individual search histories, a million erotic stories, a half million erotic videos, that's a lot, a million websites and millions of online personal ads to conclude that literally everyone is a sex freak. That's, well, what, it, that's what it would appear. Well, and I should point out that some of those searches were, were us researching this episode you know yeah i so. have to say when i was working in the coffee shop yesterday i uh, had a couple of red face shame moments <laughs> i'm not kidding because i mean some of the stuff that comes up when you're researching this title is... like little children walking up and saying mommy what is that goat man doing <laughs> is that a cup of dopamine <laughs> but yeah i mean think about it in these terms again this is from the article 1991 there are fewer than 90 porn magazines published in the u.s today more than 2.5 million porn sites Wow. That's a lot of fuel for the fires of lust. Now, uh, you've probably seen, the, there, there's like a, a book series out there called Porn for Women. And, it, yeah. it's, uh, and it's pictures of men uh, doing, household, doing chores. household chores and doing things that supposedly women find sexy on a more uh, emotional level. What are your thoughts on that based on uh, the research? Uh, what are my thoughts on that book series and, and women in porn and for real women in porn? Do you think that this is very much, this is the kind of thing that they would push the level to the, in that experiment where they had the, the little lever that they uh, adjusted depending on their... Uh, uh, no, I think that's a, a funny commentary okay. on, on you know how women get excited by things like getting help in, in the house, which is kind of sad actually, right? <laughs> on one level, like that that would become porn for women. But, I mean, there's a lot of research actually to be done mm-hmm. uh, uh, for porn for women because that is an audience that is actually expanding quite a bit. This is some of the research that I came on is the, uh, saying that, you know, they're trying to crack the nut in terms of women and what they want. And there are a lot of people who say the sort of porn that's out there for consumption isn't what women are really attracted to. Right. Because women don't necessarily want to see pictures of themselves being subjugated or some of the very, let's say, the darker images that are out there. And yet... Here's this, you know, let's go back to the, to that experiment with the woman who's watching porn mm-hmm. as opposed to the Russian uh, promo video. <laughs> and she is seeing the act and she is still aroused by it. Hmm. So, it, again, this to me that boils down to more of a cultural aspect of it. So obviously there's a huge uh, business opportunity for someone who really figures out what women want in terms of erotic stimuli, uh, visual stimuli. Uh, yeah, and I, and I was actually just thinking too that on Thirty Rock there was a really good episode in which Jack was trying to figure out what women wanted in terms of like what turned them on, mm-hmm. and very similar to the Porn for Women series. Uh-huh. Uh, oh yes, those yes. books they actually came up with a program in which yeah, Liz Lemon would turn on the TV and there, I think there was a shirtless man saying, "How are you doing today? Oh yeah, how are you feeling?" Tell me about your day, which was kind of funny. <laughs> so if anyone does figure this out and nails it, um, for, so, to for, yeah, so to speak, there'd be a lot of financial gain. It would fit in well with the overall uh, lust economy. Yes. And in fact, this is a little teaser. The next podcast topic that we are going to talk about, uh, speaking of lust economy, it is uh, the future of virtual sex. Yes. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. 
Yeah. Uh, it, a topic that I recently wrote a little on. I did a, a Stuff in the Future video about it, but we're covering all sorts of new stuff in this one. So uh, it's it's going to be amazing. Yeah, keep yeah. an ear out for that. But yes, the lust economy basically is that lust, uh, the idea is that lust drives our economy on virtually every level, like even the levels where you don't think about it. Where it's, uh, we talked about this before in, I think, uh, our advertising episode, right? Yeah, eat more popcorn. There have been experiments actually focusing on uh, men and what they choose to buy based on the environment that they're in. There, mm-hmm. there was one, again, the Discovery Science of Lust episode that talked about the street vendor with sunglasses. The one pair was like an Elvis flashy sunglass pair, and the uh-huh. other was their most popular seller. So two to choose from. And when they had a neutral background, Men overwhelmingly would buy the most popular uh, option, the, huh. you know, one of two. But when it was placed in front of an erotic, an erotica store, mm-hmm. uh, where there was tons of stuff that was sort of fueling their imagination, they went for the flashier Elvis ones because the idea is that they're trying to peacock and stand out. Hmm. So overwhelmingly, peacocking. You know, yeah, peacocking. Yes. Okay. Uh, they were trying to, this is the idea, at least, that's that their extrapolation, not mine, is that where men were trying to be more unique so that they could perhaps uh, get a mate. The whole lust economy thing, uh, it, it, I keep thinking of it when I listen to various DJ Mix podcasts, because uh, generally the podcasts that I've subscribed to, like each week or sometimes a couple of times a week, they'll have a different DJ. And uh, some of the podcasts, as album art for the the mix, will have a picture of said DJ. With the males, it's generally you find two types of DJs. There's kind of like ghastly-looking or nerdy-looking guys. So generally, these are the guys you want to listen to because they're so into the music that they really don't care what their headshot looks like. And then there are the guys that have like a really fancy or attempting to be cool headshot. And those can be pretty bad because clearly they're really invested in their physical appearance. But then there will be the occasional female DJ. And uh, I'll find my, myself sort of having the inner conflict of, of seeing the thumbnail for the mix and thinking, oh, well, she's pretty hot. I'll have to listen to this. And then I have to tell myself that has nothing to do with the, with the music at all. Like, even less so than, uh, you know, like someone like Madonna, obviously, like the whole package is about the, the presentation of, of how sh- she looks, this persona, uh, in addition to or sometimes uh, above and beyond the music. But with a, a DJ, it's like it's, it should all be about the, the sound. So I'm constantly seeing these mixes, listening to these mixes by some very talented female DJs mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and feeling weird about the whole, like, how do I... How am I supposed to compartmentalize the fact that someone like uh, like a Maya Jane Cole or an Eva B like these are they're, they're attractive women, you know? Well, I mean, you have the added problem of you know mucking the waters here that for women it's largely gender performance, right? So there are some people that say that everybody is performing drag on some level, hmm. uh, males and females, because if we didn't manipulate our our appearance at all, we'd be kind of hard to distinguish from other than uh, obvious body parts, right? Okay, aka breasts for women, right? Otherwise, everybody would be fairly hairy, uh, you know, <laughs> long hair, right? Huh. If you never cut your hair, if you never shaved, if you never plucked your eyebrows as a woman to try to accentuate your eyes or applied rouge or put, you know, any sort of adornment on. So, wow, there you go. Well, you just blew my mind. I never really thought about that, you know? It's like we were all participating in drag to some, to some point. We're all attempting to fit under uh, various classifications of what it is to be male or what it is to be female in various spaces uh, in between. Yeah, and um, then performers are just like the uber uh, gender performers, yeah, right? Yeah. Because that's, that's, you have to project that image. So huh. I think that's maybe some of the appeal of Lady Gaga on some level, although I feel like we <laughs> we haven't had a Lady Gaga uh, discussion lately. Oh, but, yeah, she, uh, she used to come up all the time. There you go. 
All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna close it out. I have one last just to bring us back around to Dante. The, the way he presented lust, not only as you know, definitely a, a sin and a stumbling block to to human happiness and spiritual happiness, but also as something that was very romantic and very 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 beautiful and and ultimately not nearly as as bad as these other sins. This is uh, from a novel by Louise Erdrich titled uh, The Last Report on the Miracles at Little No Horse, which is excellent. I, I highly recommend it. There's this wonderful brief love story between two priests. One is a male priest and the other is a female living her life as a male priest. Okay. And they end up discovering who they really are. They end up ha- having this physical and emotional relationship and uh, so there's here's just a few lines. Gregory kissed her forehead and cupped his broad hand around her face. The way the curve of her face fit into his hand took away his breath for a moment, and then he took a painful gulp of air and laughed. I hope Dante was right about hell, he said. I don't think I would mind so much whirling in in that dark wind with you forever. Cut off from God, she says. And then he adds, if we are cut off from God by sinning, he said, lo, why do I feel so close to God when I touch you in this darkness? in this cloud. See, now that, again, that is why uh, it's very hard to, to judge lust in that way when it contributes to the formation of love, which some would say is next to godliness, right? Right. And the things that keep these two characters apart, and you re- read the book by all means to find out more about this, but I mean, the, the, the things that keep them apart are very much this this culture that's built up around them, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. Well, let's call the robot over here and get some uh, listener mail. All right. Well, we have a couple here uh, related to our sin episodes. Karen writes in about envy, and she says, uh, Hey, guys, I'm a communication major with an emphasis in media, so after listening to the episode on envy, I started thinking about how technology plays into envy. With the ever-expanding social networking sites, that are now, there are now infinite ways to become envious of others. Facebook, for example, now seems to be less about keeping in contact with others and more about displaying your life. People become envious of others through seeing all the good parts of someone's life. On the flip side of that is the humanizing of people as well. For instance, if a person you think has their life together gets tagged in an unflattering situation, um, or just you know, generally un- unflattering photos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as she continues, I have also recently joined Pinterest and found the same sort of envy-producing social networking. People are either pinning their own pictures or adding pictures of a lifestyle they wish to have. I think I think it may be unhealthy to envy others so much, but what can I say? It is addicting at the same time. Love the show. Thanks, Karen. Yeah, the Pinterest thing is really interesting because it does seem to be some sort of like, uh, you know, I guess they call them like dream boards or whatever, like things yeah. that you want in the future that mm-hmm. you create for yourself. At the same time, it seems to be like uh, the sort of meta expression of want, yeah. meaning that I, I don't see it as a serious like yearning for something, but more like let's talk about these the visual aspects of what make this really cool or exciting to me. Yeah. It's sort of a celebration, really, of art to a certain degree. I don't know if some people would say that, you know, braided hairstyles qualify as art, uh-huh. but there's certainly a lot of interesting things that would um, that are, would arrest your eyes in huh. some of those photos, right? I remember, like, back in uh, college, just to, to bring that back around to lust, I remember everybody's out on their own for the first time, for the most part, and they all have computers, and so... Everybody's putting, uh, you know, they're putting up posters. Sometimes for the guys, they'll be slightly sexual. But I remember there would be some guys who would, as their desktop wallpaper, would have like really racy, if not pornographic, material as mm-hmm. their desktop wallpaper. Yeah. And I remember, like, you know, even then thinking, "Wow, really? Like, that's gonna be that's your Pinterest board, basically? <laughs> is is this lady?" Uh, yeah, or- but I think we live in a in an age where sexuality and self expression are, are changing quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I was just actually thinking about my cousin who showed me a picture of his girlfriend on his iPhone, and she was in her lace underwear and bra. 
And I was like, you know what? Maybe that's just, that's okay. You know, like you're, you know, 22 and that's, that's acceptable. Yeah. Maybe she, you know, did not necessarily want him to do that, but it seems to me just a different level of sharing. Yeah, it's one thing to keep in mind. There are generations uh, now that are adults and becoming adults that do not know an age before total internet. Yeah, yeah. It's a a different, you know, frame of mind altogether. Uh, Here's another uh, bit of listener mail related to sins, this time on the uh, gluttony episode. Uh, Or no, on absolute disgust of gluttony. So I guess she's kind of, she's tying together a couple of different things we've talked about. This is from Cam. Cam writes in and says, Hi, Julian Robert. I'm Cam, a a recent listener to your podcast uh, from Manila, the Philippines. Though I've been listening for a while now, it was only during your podcast on gluttony that I got the urge and the courage to drop you a note. As I was listening to your discussion on El Wingador's training regime, I found myself thinking back to your episode on Absolute Disgust and realized that, in my case, gluttony of that sort demonstrated by El Wingador and Kobayashi triggered disgust in me. For some odd reason, the idea of eating my own weight in food makes me queasy. Don't get me wrong, I love a good meal as much as the next person, but the sheer volume of food consumed by competitive eaters is off-putting. On the other hand, chili eating and nettle eating contests aren't as off-putting, and I find those highly amusing. I guess in those contests, it's not about how much a contestant can consume, so much as it's about how much pain they can tolerate before they dissolve into a quivering wreck, which, as I said, I find exceedingly amusing. This is not I believe say anything flattering about me, but I promise I'm a very nice person most of the time. Anyway, I just like to say thank you for the awesome job you do on the podcast, and I'll definitely be looking forward to your next mind blowing episode. So she's she's like okay with the gluttony as long as it's like transcending some sort of other challenge, obstacle like pain. So now what is a nettle? A nettle I thought was an herb. Hmm. Nettles. I'll have to look up a nettle eating kind. I'm gonna, I'm thinking it must be not uh Well I think it's something means- that's very Easy to, to either digest or to chew. Well, when she said chili, she must she meant like hot chili. Yeah, the spice because, in there. Because when I first read it, I was thinking bowls of chili, and she was like, and, I, and so I thought her point was eating hot dogs. That's gross. Contest about eating pots of chili. Bring it on. No, I think she's just talking about the degree of spiciness. Okay, yeah. I I would agree with that. That that while it's it's maybe a type of gluttony to just eat as many hot peppers as you can possibly stand. It's not. Uh, it's a different type of test. Like how much pain can you know? How much mace can you eat for breakfast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an endurance thing. Yeah, Jonathan Strickland would probably go for that of tech stuff. Seems to recall he's a, he's kind of a spice glutton. He is. Yeah. He's got like all sorts of bottles surrounding him at all times on his desk. That's yeah. a lie. Yeah. He has that that mask that he wears that has the Shiraka bottles in it where. he... He somehow breathes a liquid Shiraka. Yeah, he's created the Sriracha biosphere actually for himself. Oh, I said it wrong. I always say it wrong. I always say Shiraka. But I don't I guess there's not even an H in there. But I don't know. I might no. be saying it wrong. Who knows? One last point on gluttony. I brought up in the podcast, hey, I wonder if vegans have eating contests. As it turns out there are <laughs> vegan hot dog eating contests. A couple of different listeners brought that up. And unsurprisingly, uh, one of them was in Austin, Texas. Which uh, a friend of mine, uh, Becky Streepy, pointed out, like that's the perfect place for it because Austin is kind of a, a convergence of like sort of, like sort of hippie do-goodery and, uh, and you know big Texan yeah. uh, indulgence. So right, right, makes perfect. Sense. Plus the what's their logo? Keep Austin weird. Yeah, keep Austin weird. Yeah, yeah, fits in nicely. So there you have it. We'd really love to hear from you about lust. I mean, make sure it's something. I mean, if, if you want to share something with us that uh, we can't read on the air, you know, that's fine. Let us know. Maybe it'll just be for our amusement. But uh, 
but certainly things we can we can share with other listeners are nice. What are you, what are your thoughts on say the lost economy and how it informs everything we do? What are your thoughts on our ability to use our our brains to defeat lusty or or otherwise inconvenient thoughts? You know any of it's fair game. So let us know. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, we are stuff to blow your mind. Uh, on that little website. And if you look us up on Twitter, we go by the handle Blow the Mind. And you can also drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.